Welcome to So-and-So, brought to you by Bernina, made to create. I'm Meg Goodman, and you're about to enjoy a casual conversation with a special member of the Soist and Quilting community. A conversation about how they got started, what inspires them, what excites them, and their connection to this community. Our guest today is Kelly Dempsey, a sustainable fashion designer and Project Runway Season 14 runner-up. She's become a leading voice for sustainability and equitability in the fashion industry and has been featured on Good Morning America and in Marie Claire. Born and raised right outside Boston in Munson, Kelly taught herself to upcycle when she was nine years old. Bullied in school, she used these experiences to eventually launch a terrifically successful career. Her passion for upcycling has led her to numerous opportunities, several of which are her courses on sewing and upcycling. When not teaching or creating, Kelly loves to be in nature, walking along the beach, being in nature, and listening to her headphones. She currently lives in Boston with her boyfriend, and they're about to celebrate 10 years together. Hi, Kelly, and welcome to So-and-So. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We have got some fun things to talk about and some very timely and some poignant things. So I'm, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, when and how did you learn to sew? So I started sewing and upcycling and experimenting with my clothing when I was around nine years old. I grew up in a really small town, as you mentioned, outside of Boston. And as you know, small towns can be tough when you're a kid going to school. Our family was a little tight on money and I would shop at the thrift store that was actually two houses down from me called the church mouse. My mom would give me 50 cents, a dollar, $2. And I would rummage through these thrift store bins, these quarter cent bins. And I loved it. I had so much fun doing this as a kid, but being in such a small town, I'm rummaging through my small population's schoolmates clothing, not knowing it. So I would be so proud of my findings, go to school and people would notice that that was their clothing. And I started getting picked (laughs) on for it. And I grew up in a very creative environment. My mom had turned the front of our house into a craft store. She was always very resourceful. We had hours on our front door. We would go to yard sales. She would find silverware, um, you know, at people's we call them tag sales, but people know them as yard sales. Mm -hmm. And she would turn them into wind chimes. She would make all kinds of things from, you know, people that were giving away stuff from their yard sales. And I learned sort of how to be resourceful at a young age, watching her turn people's trash to treasure. So instead of, you know, being a victim of, well, this stinks that I'm just going to get picked on, I started experimenting and ripping up my clothing and sticking pieces of other clothing with other stuff. And, you know, I sort of, I, I got the bullying to stop and it was a moment for me that um, sort of a liberation where I, I am in control even without with cert, without certain resources mm-hmm. that other kids had. And it sort of sparked this. It didn't sort of, it did. It, it got me really into, you know, overcoming things and, and just enjoying fashion design and being expressive at that age. So out of, out of necessity and uh, interest and creativity, you learn to sew. Um, you mentioned being bullied, Kelly. I want to talk about this for just a second. Um, 
you've said in in what I've learned about you that this is has been experiences that you say ignited you to overcome challenges. And there are a lot of kids out there who are bullied a lot. Um, what advice do you have for them? I'm just so grateful. I, I really dedicate my platform to showing people the importance of thrifting. And, you know, it's become trendy and people that have thrifted, I've thrifted 30 years now, I'm going to be 40 in a couple months, you know, and I, I don't look at it as, oh, it's trendy. Uh, the prices went up a few dollars. I'm grateful for the kids that are 9, 10, 11 years old that were in the situation that I was in growing up and don't have to be bullied because now they can go get a $7 you know pair of pants and, and be cool and not have to go through what I went through. And I've dedicated my platform the last eight years to really promoting the coolness of thrifting because I understand what it's like to be on that fence where there's, that is your only option. Mm -hmm. And, and kids don't understand that at certain ages. It's, it's tough at any age and overcoming that was paramount for you. You eventually ended up on uh, project runway. We're going to talk about that in depth in a minute, but you call yourself Kelly from the deli um, after working at Bob's Italian Foods in Medford. Um, was this a defining experience for you? And, and why did you choose Kelly from the deli to identify yourself? So one of the my participants, uh, the other contestant on the show, Merlene, she actually came up with the name Kelly from the deli on the show. But it's funny how things work in life because I waitressed for 18 years and I chose waitressing because it's a very flexible job. I always had dreams of being a fashion designer. So I would apply for things in New York for events. And if I got picked for, I would, you know, have to switch my hours really quickly and days and waitressing always allowed me to do that. I ended up getting this weird like health problem when I was waitressing and I liked waitressing. It's good exercise. Mm -hmm. It's quick money. Um, but I, I got this like dizziness over my body and they actually never figured out what it was and it went away, but I would get, I think it was related to anxiety because I, I definitely have anxiety. I've learned how to control it, but I think it was sort of like an anxiety attack thing that anytime I went back into the restaurant, I started getting lightheaded again mm. and I ended up quitting waitressing and it was, I, it was weird. And then I, you know, it was something totally different. So I got a job at Bob's Deli. That was where I went after that. And I've never worked in a job like that. And I was only there for two months before Project Runway sent me an email. I didn't apply for that season. So sometimes I say when you think things are really bad, I would have never been Kelly from the deli if I didn't get that weird health episode and thought my life was falling apart mm. when actually it was falling into place. That's, I like that. When you think it's falling apart, it's falling into place. When you were on Project Runway, you took Tim Gunn to the deli. What was that like? It was, it was very surreal because I watched Project Runway since season one. I was always a huge fan of the show. And me and my aunt would watch 10 years. I think we did the math almost to the day of him coming to do the home visit. And we would sit and watch it and say, he's going to be in here someday. He's going to be in this room. Like you're going to be on the show. And I always spoke very positive as if things already happened. And then we did the math. It was almost 10 years to the day that he was standing in that room and bringing him to the deli, uh, just in a place where I, I never saw that coming. And then he's standing there. It was just very surreal. 
I can imagine. And, and let's as long as we're talking about Project Runway, how did you get to be on the show? So I always believe in putting out your work. So like I said, I would go to New York all the time for fashion events. And I would always think in my mind for years, oh, this is my big break. And I never had uh, I never had money or connections. I would sleep in my car in parking garages. I would take the $10, $15 bus. You know, I would do what I had to do to, to get my quote unquote big break. I've done so many events, you know, as a very amateur designer and I never got the, the expo, the, you know, the breakthrough that I thought I was going to get on that, that one opportunity. So I ended up taking all of that accumulation of work over 10, 15 years. And I just made a Tumblr page online where you can post all your work. I don't even know if there is still Tumblr. (laughs) Um, It's just a place like Instagram. You can really post, Mm -hmm. you know, pictures. So I would just post, post, post. And eventually I found out when I asked uh, Project Runway Production after I was on it, like how they found me. And I believe they found me from my Tumblr page. So even though I wasn't getting the instant gratification in those moments, you know, I was accumulating something that was something more than those individual moments that they were able to find me that way. What was it like to be on the show? It was absolutely amazing, but being one of the, or being the only self-taught designer was very intimidating when I got there. I did go to mass art for one year, but it's a state regulated school. So you don't really even take, um, you know, real fashion classes, so to say. And I was sewing for 20 years before that. My dad got sick. I ended up leaving. Um, I got full grants to go and everything. So I, I went home to take care of my dad. but. I I consider myself self-taught and, you know, walking in there and hearing everybody talk, how they study in Prague and they, they've done this and they, they do all this stuff. And I just think about how I sleep in my parking garage and I sew in my aunt's moldy basement and, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was, it was like a moment at the beginning of, Oh no, what did I get myself into? This is, I hope I don't make a fool of myself. And uh, it ended up, I I had a lot of passion and fire going in, and I think that that led the way. Can you share any behind-the-scenes stories with us? Well, something people don't know, which is so funny, is you have to take like a 500-question psychiatric test before you can even be accepted to be on the show. And you have to huh. you have to do it at your doctor's office. They have to literally open the, the envelope, and you have to sit there. I thought it was going to be like, 10 questions. So I went there 20 minutes before they closed and it was 500 questions and I ended up, you know, getting it done. They let me stay a little bit later, but you know, they, there, there is a lot that goes into it because for three months you don't have a phone. You can't watch TV. You can't go for a walk by yourself. You can't read a magazine. And when the cameras aren't rolling, you're on something called hard ice. There's either hard ice or soft ice. And that means hard ice is no talking. And that's like 90% of the time when we're, you know, up behind the scenes before the cameras are rolling because they want to catch all the moments on camera. So if we're talking and, you know, all this stuff when the cameras on around, then once, you know, the cameras are there, it's just going to be like kind of boring because we've been talking the whole time. So I get it, but it is definitely mentally I see why they do these, the psychiatric test, (laughs) you know? Uh Uh-huh. You know, I, and I'm, I'm assuming that, that this goes on with a lot of the reality shows, but to us who just watch them, um, we, we don't understand what you all have gone through to prepare that content. 
Yeah, and that when you watch Project Runway, you'll see when we have Runway Day and they're judging the outfits. I think it's like forty-five seconds on when you're watching it on TV. It's actually we're there at like five in the morning, and we don't leave till eleven o'clock at night. It is an all-day, like very, very long process in between filming and sitting in a room. So it's like, it's so fun. It was actually fun to like, see how they edit it down and how much work actually goes into creating that 45 seconds. And you really had to put your life on hold for the whole duration of filming the show. Yeah. I, you couldn't even call anybody. You I, they let us call our dad for father's day. Thank God. Cause my dad was sick. Um, but I m- probably made one phone call for three months and it was my boyfriend and it was on, on camera. <laughs> like, oh, so, wow. Yeah. So there's, you don't talk to anybody uh, except the people that you're there with. And um, it's very, if you, if you have a hard time with that, I'm, I'm very go with the flow. I, I've lived in different places. I've been in really hard situations where I'm okay with times like that. But if you're very structured and you need to do things at certain times, I could see that being very difficult for some of the contestants. And that was season 14. Yes. Correct. Okay, good. Good, good reference for those of us who, who want to go back and, and take a look. Now that we know all of the, what you went through, you can watch it through kind of a different lens. Yeah. Um, one of the things that is, is really important to you is educating people about fast fashion. And you have said that it's the second largest polluter behind oil with 80% of thrifted items ending up in landfills. That's shocking. Um, Would you dive deeper into this for us, Kelly, and give us some steps we can take to help address this? Absolutely. And I feel like it's, it's, it's not a consumer problem. It's not that we're the problem. It is, you know, it is these big corporations that take advantage of really cheap material that doesn't last, that they can make very, very affordably, too affordably, actually, where, you know, most of the clothing that is made fast fashion is made overseas, Bangladesh. You know, there was the Rana Plaza disaster that happened 10 years ago now, where Accord was put in, which was a binding agreement in between a lot of different countries because the Rana Plaza disaster happened after over a thousand garment workers lost their lives in a building that wasn't held up to code. Mm-hmm. But there, there was a lot more that went into it. They, you know, like Walmart, um, Primart said they weren't part of it. Then when the disaster happened, there was evidence that they were getting their clothing made there. You know, it was supposed to be a two-story building. They didn't have proper coding. So besides, you know, the, the environmental problems of fast fashion, the ethical, you know, turmoil that these garment workers, one in four people in the, in the world are garment workers. Most of them women over 90% are not paid a living wage. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people use the excuse well, that, that, well, you know, there's a different minimum wage in different countries, but it's not necessarily the amount they're being paid, even though they are getting paid under the minimum wage, most of them, it's the amount of work from me, from someone who sews, the amount of work that is expected of them, the company Shein, which is now one of the biggest with rivaling with Amazon, Coca-Cola for polluters in the world, they came out of nowhere. They made $30 billion last year and a couple journalists went undercover uh, two years ago, and they discovered that these garment workers are making five 
hundred garments a day mm. being getting paid four cents a garment. If they make one, it takes 18 hours. If they make one mistake, it can, they can dock up to half of their daily pay, which is a ton of money. They get one day off a month and they don't get proper bathrooms and, and nothing. And as someone who sews, I feel like, and I have a platform, I'm grateful that I I don't have to do that to survive and they're not even surviving, you know, and if I have a voice that can help these people that don't have a voice, because if they speak out, they lose their jobs. And, you know, with Rana Plaza, it was supposed to be in Bangladesh 10 years ago. It was supposed to be a two story building. Somebody with political ties, uh, got building code to get that building up to nine floors in the first floor and the second floor were banking and retail stores. And then the rest seven, seven so floors were garment factories. Mm -hmm. And these garment workers were noticing cracks in the walls and they were like, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. They had a building code person come in and the guy, the code, the, the building code man said, this is absolutely not safe. It needs to be closed down. Um, these it needs to be shut down. Nobody can go to work tomorrow. The bankers and the people in the retail stores on the first two floors got the memo that the building was not safe and none, none of them showed up for work. Uh, Mr. Rana, who owned the factory of the garment workers, knew that the building was going to go down and still let over a thousand garment workers, made them come in, said that they were going to be fired if they did not just wanting to get one more day of work, knowing the building was going down and it did. And mm -hmm. over a thousand garment workers lost their lives. And I just feel if I can have a voice and there's a lot of people like me that, that do this, spread the same information. It's people don't realize, you know, sort of the dark side of our clothing. And, and it's kind of it after project runway, I had the opportunity to make certain collections with brands. And when I learned what was going to go into it, where it was going to be made, what I was going to be doing, I realized upcycling clothing as a kid wasn't an accident. And now I have over 600 students on my platform, teaching people how to be sustainable, upcycling their clothing and breaking free from fast fashion. Kelly, when, when you first started talking about this, you said it's not as much a consumer problem. And all of us have clothing items we no longer wear. Some of us donate them to thrift shops. Some throw them away. Um, there's a lot of us consumers out there also um, who may not be as, as talented sewing uh, as you are or others who make their own clothes. So, so what can we do um, to address this problem, even in a small way? So the best thing to do is from, from now, I always say the best way to shop is to shop our closets. The most sustainable way to shop is to shop our closets, just consume less. We're, we're, we're kind of like brainwashed and that these fast fashion companies make billions of dollars. They know how to market and, you know, ever changing trends. They use influencers on social media to oh Sheen Hall, you know, that's got, 300 billion views, uh, that hashtag. So they're using very tricking marketing to make people think an item worn a couple times is old. So with the stuff you already have, there's websites and I have a link in my bio on that. I can share with you, uh, different places that you can donate your items where they will go to use. There's also creative ways. I actually was just, uh, I just created um, a challenge called Mittens for Good that launched on the Bernina 
we all saw a blog mm-hmm. yesterday. Yesterday, I'm not sure if you saw that, where we t- you can take your old sweaters, and I have a pattern, and you could even hand sew it. It's super easy, and you can turn your sweaters into mittens, and then donate them to your local Bernina dealers, and then they're going to donate them to the homeless. We have over a half a million homeless right now, one in 500 people in the United States. So I started a mittens for good challenge. So if you have old sweaters, that is a great place to, to, to donate those. At the end of our conversation, I, I want to make sure that you do mention that link in your bio. We're going to talk about how to get a hold of you and, and we will be information rich. Um, Upcycling. You are just, yeah, even just saying passionate advocate um, doesn't seem like it fully explains how you feel. Um, but what I, I love is your, your theory that there is no wrong in creativity. Um, would you talk a little bit about the process of upcycling and what we can do ranging from the beginner to the advanced? Yeah, and I have... Uh, courses with, I, I actually like to work with people that are beginners because I have a course called Thrift uh, thrift Flipping 101 and it doesn't even include any sewing. And people always say, you know, I could never do what you do or every time I go to the thrift store, I can never find anything good to upcycle. But I always say it's, it's mindset 90% because if you go into a thrift store and you how do I always find something good? It's because I don't look at something as a shirt. I look at everything as raw material. Mm. So it's it's really about looking at things in a different way. You could easily say, oh, this skirt was some lady's skirt that that is I would never do anything with. Or you could say, wow, this is a beautiful textile that I could cut up and put with this. And it's really about your mindset when you look at things. You know, I... I, I started making belt bags from the thrift store. So I'll take, you know, belts that they're over, they're everywhere at the thrift store and, you know, people don't know what to do with them. And I use them as strappings as my bags. I have a course for a belt bag where you can take like items from thrift stores. And I just taught an in-person class and you don't need a lot of material, you know, so you don't need like uh, 10 yards of fabric. You can just have a little, a little skirt or a shirt or something. But I think I think everything is mindset with the way you look at things. And sorry, I kind of lost your your question. There. <laughs> yeah, you just answered it. <laughs> you okay. did. Okay. Well, it, it, you were talking about all these projects. Um, do you have a favorite upcycling project that you did? I love everything in a different way. Oh, you were saying you were saying. Sorry, I I remember the one part you were saying that you know, how I say there's no wrong in creating. Right. So I, f- I feel like that. I feel like a lot of people are scared to sew. And and I find out, I found out why people are afraid to sew. It's because they're afraid of making a mistake. They're mm-hmm. not actually afraid of, you know, actually sewing. They're afraid that they're, they're not going to do it right. And being somebody who's 98% self-taught, you know, you learn from experience and and you you don't look at the end product i think if you're focused on what the end product's going to look like you're going to lose that that path along the process of creating it where that is where the magic is it's not at the end when you see it it's while you're creating it and if you you know that there's no wrong and it's just a form of expression then you you won't be scared and you're going to get to your path through you know each step as you go mhm and then we were going to talk about your favorite upcycling project, something that 
you know, just really has always resonated with you, something that you did, or maybe it hasn't even happened yet. I don't know. So I did just do a partnership with Mettler Thread and they sent me some recycled thread and I just took a, this is one of my favorite I've ever made and this was only a couple weeks ago, but I've been saving trash like paper and plastic trash and I made a tote bag like a high-end tote where I made it like a high-end trash bag and I used their thread to sort of stitch stitch over all that thread and I put a piece of shower curtain over their thread. I made like a mosaic design. Design. took me 15 hours of sewing and it's one of my favorite pieces and besides that I would say I upcycled a sleeping bag from a thrift store and made it into a five-piece crazy outfit I made a duffel bag and a jacket and a hat and it was during COVID so I made a little matching mask and it was just wild but it was really cool Sounds like COVID gave a lot of us a lot of time to be creative, I think. Yes. You talked about your 600 students. Um, You do online upcycling, beginning sewing platform. Um, How do you come up with these courses? Tell us a little bit more about what people can, how you come up with this and what people can expect when, uh, when they work with you. So I really like working with people that have never sewn or beginner sewing because I feel like being self-taught, I can speak in a way where they can understand just like I taught myself not professionally trained, which I I have no, I think that's amazing, but that's just not my, my story. But I think people that have never sewn, I have a uh, a good way to co- of communicating with people or we use the same verbiage where, you know, I can help them understand. And I really enjoy watching people, you know, want to be creative and then actually doing it and taking that step because we all have our own form of creativity. And it's fun to sort of like pull that out of people and see their interpretation. Like with my belt bag course, I love seeing the belt bags people make and how They've all picked different materials and different belts. And it's just fun to see everybody's own, you know, creativity coming out. It's nice. You see yourself as a very positive person. uh, And that's obvious in this conversation. Um, But you said that you have heard no a lot of times. Would you share a time or two with us about when you heard no and then what you did to move through it? So when I, before I was on Project Runway and I said I would get these opportunities to go to New York and I would, you know, jump on a bus and, you know, go down there for the day, that was only because I would send probably 50 emails a day, every day, all the time. And I, I maybe heard back, I would, it would be a copy paste, right? But I would be like, oh, magazines here. I'd be on Craigslist a lot. Oh, I would go. Uh, magazines in Tokyo. I I never, I never sort of thought, oh, I couldn't do this. I just know that the if you don't put yourself out there, you're you're never going to get anything back. So you you know the right things are going to show up when they show up. So I kind of threw myself out everywhere. Not I mean I would be excited if I got you know a response, but I never heard back from ninety percent of those emails, ninety nine percent, and it only takes a couple of the yeses, right? Then Project Runway found me, so it's like all those no's and then the couple yeses that I created my portfolio. And then that one yes was what, you know, catapulted me into, you know, what I'm doing now. So if, if, I, if I gave up on those hundreds and thousands of no's I probably heard, 
then I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. You know what I mean? I think if you, I think if you just trust that the the right thing is, will find you. What I always say, what you're seeking is seeking you. So mm-hmm. if you trust that process, then no won't bother you because you know that, that it's protecting you from something and you're guided somewhere else, you know? So, so given all you've done to get to where you are today, what's next for you? The options are endless, right? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, um, I want to really, I, I just became an ambassador for the Fashion Act, which is a bill they're trying to pass in, or they are, they are looking to pass in New York that will create sustainability through the fast the fashion, fast fashion, you know, supply chain that will trickle to all these other countries and really help people. So I, I'm really focused on educating people on fast fashion. And if I can just create unique art and inspire other people to express their creativity, then that is the plan as well. I also have ideas where I want to have my own TV show where I kind of sort of do my own project runway thing. Um, I have different ideas with that. And then I also want to start sort of a, a subscription-based thing where I, you can kind of follow me behind the scenes on my journey of doing all these crazy things I'm, I'm doing, you know, following me along from a, a real point of view, you know. I have no doubt that this is all going to happen, um, given where you've come to today. I do want to go back to that Fashion Act. Is that New York only or is that nationwide? So you have to be a New York resident to to vote on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other bills that are going to be introduced in other countries. But right now, the Fashion Act is just New York. But them being, you know, one of the major fashion capitals of the world with that getting passed, that's going to set an example, you know, for the rest of the world to follow as they are a trendsetter. Right. So that's uh, it's an important place to start. It is. It's a good place. So you were talking about what you'd like to do, and we're, we're going to talk about your, your dream. You talked about a TV show. You talked about uh, subscription-based. Fill in this blank. Someday I, what? I want to inspire as many people as I can to follow the beat of their own drum. Okay. We talked about a lot today, Kelly. Is there any question I didn't ask you that you wish I had? Um, one really cool thing I want to share that was a full circle moment for me is I just had the opportunity to be on the biggest billboard in Times Square for Fashion Week. Oh, and, wow. and I'm wearing, I'm in it. It's a picture of me wearing pants that I made from curtains from a thrift store. And it says... Curtains to, couture, curtains to Couture, redefining the future of fashion. And it was sort of a full circle moment for me as I used to be picked on for thrift clothes. And then, you know, it was like, it was just a really big moment. And that happened for this last fashion week. Um, I, I, I do some work with a, a magazine that has access to billboards. And they asked me if I wanted to do that. And it was, it was really awesome. So do you have a picture of that? I do. So when we, um, as you know, we share pictures of your choosing on the so-and-so website along with your episode, we'd love it if you'd include that in your your suite of pictures that you're going to send us because that was your moment. It all came back to you in, in seeing that. And we'd love to see that. Absolutely. I have a bunch of them, so you got one. 
Excellent. Kelly, this has been just a wonderful and fun conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for, for listening. And I appreciate it. Now, if, if we want to reach out to you uh, for more information, to follow you, and you also talked about that link uh, in your bio for sending clothes. First of all, how can we reach out to you if we want to have more conversation, follow you, see what you're up to? So I have a Facebook, Instagram, and a TikTok. I'm, I'm most active, I would say, on Facebook and Instagram. But if you if you follow me on Instagram, I have, if you click the link in my bio, it has a link of about 10 different links. It has my course platform if you want to take courses. It has the resources where to donate, you know, items that you're not sure where to donate. It has facts about fast fashion if you want to learn more how to follow me on all other platforms so i would say my link tree by uh my link tree link on my bio on instagram or i could just send you that link tree link separate as well if you want that excellent we'll we'll include that in the show notes and you have a website how do we find that so my website is kellydempsey.com. I do sell my one-off designs on a website called Rack Attic that I've had for the last seven years since Project Runway, but I'm actually moving Rack Attic over to Kelly Dempsey and just everything's going to be Kelly Dempsey in the next week or so. So uh, Kelly Dempsey is where you can find my courses and eventually my shop page. Excellent. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Another story about someone just like you, someone for whom sewing is so much more than a hobby. It's a way of life. It's a connection to something much bigger. If you know someone you think has an outstanding story, a story that should be shared on this podcast, please drop me a note to meg at soandsopodcast.com or just complete the form on our website. Be sure to subscribe to, review, and rate this podcast on your favorite platform and visit our website, soandso.com, for more information about today's and all of our guests. That's S-E-W-A-N-D-S-O podcast.com. And finally, I want to thank Bernina for making this program possible. I'm Meg Goodman, and I look forward to you joining us next time on So-and-So.